So if I were to ask you the question, what are you devoted to? Just want you to think about it. What are you devoted to? What would be your response? See, for some of you, you might say, I'm really devoted to work. Or maybe your spouse would say, he's really or, he's really, or she's really devoted to his work or her work, right? Like you're really committed. You're bought. Maybe, maybe you have a lot of purpose around your work. Or maybe some of you might say you're a devoted fan, right? Like, like you would be so committed to your team and have incredible perseverance through bad coaching and painful trades and a losing season and giving your quarterback to Cleveland. And uh, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. But you're a devoted fan, right? Like there's all kinds of things that we can feel devoted to. But oftentimes when we think of being devoted, we're thinking of who we're devoted to. And it's often people that we love. We're devoted to our spouse. We're, we're devoted to our family. We're devoted to God. And again, this, this word devoted literally means to cleave or to you know, stick up for some, stick up something closely so that you persevere through it, right? Like no matter what, you are sticking to that person or that thing so closely. It means to remain in perseverance. That's what devoted literally means. It's a word that expresses great loyalty and even submission. So when you think of devoted, when you think of being really staying in with somebody, there's an intimacy to it. And you think of being devoted to something, do you ever think about being devoted to the church? And hear me, I'm not talking about being devoted to an organization. I'm not talking about being devoted to organized religion. I'm talking about being devoted to the people that are sitting right next to you. And I'm not talking about just your family. I'm talking about everybody else in that row, the, the people that greeted you when you got out of your car in the parking lot, the, those who greeted you when you came through the doors, maybe when you went and got coffee or they took your kids and are now serving and caring for them. Are you devoted to them, the ones that led you into the presence of God, who, who take care of the lights and all the things on the slide, like all those people, are you devoted to them as they are called to be devoted to you? And what does this look like? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Acts chapter 2. And again, if you're a guest, so grateful that you're here. If you're tuning in online, thank you for tuning in. Uh, there's notes online, so you can go to our website and click on that. You can have the notes. If you didn't get them when you came in, they're at the door. You're welcome to get those and follow along. But we are going through the book of Acts chapter and verse by verse. So we're following along. Uh, we're in the end of chapter 2. I'll just give you a little, you know, recap a little bit. You can always go back online and, and watch the messages so you can feel like you can get caught up. But, but Jesus has ascended, and before he ascended, he told the apostles, hey, go back to the upper room, and I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit, because I'm sending you out as witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so, so he's telling them to wait. So all of a sudden, then he's going to send the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes on them at the day of Pentecost, and they start speaking in tongues. And they start, you know, talking in languages that all these different people understood all of a sudden in their language, and they thought they were drunk. They thought something was weird about this. Like, what is this? And so Peter steps forward and gives them the message. He shares the gospel with them, helps them understand. All of a sudden, they're incredibly convicted, and they say, what do we do? Like, how do we respond to everything you've just now told us 
and they respond. And so Peter says, repent, like turn away from your sin, turn towards Christ, turn away from everything you thought Jesus was, and now turn to him as Savior, Messiah, as King, and then be baptized, publicly let people know that you're associating with Jesus. And so this happens, and I want you to listen to what the results are. Verse 41, where we left off last week, it says, And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, I just want you to imagine that. They went from 120 to 3,000. But the question is, what were they added to? 3,000 were added that day, but what were they added to? Because a lot of times we'll think, well, they were added to the church. And again, I'm not necessarily going to disagree with that, but that word church is nowhere to be found in this passage. They didn't add 3,000 people to an organization. They didn't, they didn't add 3,000 people to a building. They didn't add 3,000 people to a religion. They added 3,000 people people, and I do believe it's church, and I'm going to explain it to you in a moment, but the church just went from 120 to 3,000. I'm just asking, what would you do if that happened here? Let's say you're in charge. What are you going to do? All of a sudden, 3,000 more people, it's almost like an Easter service, all of a sudden, wham, all these people just start flooding in. What do you do? Peter, Peter hadn't been to seminary. He hadn't been there. Most churches would never have hired Peter. He wasn't qualified. But yet, all of a sudden, we see 3,000 people are added to their numbers. And I can promise you what Peter didn't do. I can promise you this. He did not gather the apostles together and say, okay, guys, listen, we got to get some bylaws. We got to get some job descriptions. We got to make sure we got the right organizational structure. We got to put some committees together. You know, we got to do a building campaign because we got to have a build. Like, like there's just, that didn't happen. And so what happens? And I'm just telling you, for me, we would immediately go into, we got to have six services. We've got to, you know, you know, expand our children's area and our student ministry and our parking lot, you know, just to be able to take care of all. We immediately go to programming, oftentimes. Like, what are we going to do? with all these people. But see, buildings were never, even though there's a, a place for them, obviously you're in one, but they were never meant to define the church. And again, as you think of the word church, we get the English word church from the German word, and I apologize if you know German because I'm going to butcher this, but it's like Kirch. It's K-I-R-C-H-E. That's where we get our English word. And the German word church, kirch, it literally means a place you gather for religious purposes. But the biblical word for church is ecclesia, was never meant for to be a place. It was a gathering of called out people around a conviction. And the conviction that Jesus set up with Peter was that he was the son of God. Remember, if you go back to the conversation with Jesus asked Peter, hey, who do people say that I am? And then he gets to Peter and says, well, Peter, who do you say that I am? And he said, well, you're the Christ. You're the, 
You're the son of the living God. And he says, and on this rock, Peter, in other words, on this bedrock statement that you just made that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God, I, Jesus, will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when we gather as the church, as the ecclesia, it's around a conviction that Jesus really is who he says he is. Amen? Amen. So that's that's the beauty of the church. And so when they added 3,000 people, there was these called out people from Judaism around the conviction that Jesus really is who he says he is. So let me ask you a very important question. What came first, the mission or the church? Just think about this. What came first, the mission or the church? Did Jesus build a church and then give it a mission? Or did he give us a mission and then built a church? Yeah, the mission came first. You say, well, what's the mission? He tells us in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very ends of the age. And so think about this. The church came after the missions. And the mission is primary. It was the church, don't miss this part. The church has always been designed to serve the mission. The mission doesn't serve the church. The church serves the mission. The mission is to make, and the way we articulate it is we're going to make and send disciples who love and live like Jesus. So follow this. So a church, a body of believers, a family of called out ones who are not on mission of making disciples is really no longer a church. It's just a bunch of religious people showing up for religious services. So when the church had gotten away from making disciples and all of a sudden it became all these other things, it really ceases to keep, it ceases being the function that God designed it for. And so when he added those 3,000 souls, it was for a purpose and a reason. And so as they, as they came, these new believing followers of Jesus, all of a sudden, now, guess what? They're new to this whole following Jesus. And they, all of a sudden we see what Acts 2 says is that they were devoted. Their hearts and lives had been captured by the message, the grace-loving message of Jesus. And again, they had been all of a sudden transfixed by what the Holy Spirit was now moving. And they yielded and they submitted themselves to the Holy Spirit's leading, and God started growing, actually at this point, multiplying his church, and you and I are here today because of this event. Amen. Because of this moment, God birthed this thing called the church. And so we know the mission, to make and send disciples who love and live like Jesus, and then he helps us understand new disciples, new family members, us, the followers of Christ, he says, this is what you're to be devoted to. And he says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayer. So 
I want you to follow this. I want to give you a few things that he said to be devoted to. So it was really, he says, the apostles' teaching. So I put in there, teaching, the teaching of God's word. The new believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because they were infants in their faith. They knew they needed to be fed. They knew they needed to learn. They'd been taught their whole life about Judaism. And now all of a sudden, they, they were leaving Judaism to follow Jesus and what what does it mean to actually be a follower of Jesus? So as these apostles were helping them understand, you need to stay under the teaching of God's word. Listen to me. You will never outgrow God's word. I'm going to potentially, I've studied it maybe longer than probably most all of you. Not because I'm a lot older, because I've just given a bunch of my life to it. And I'm telling you, I can probably say almost every single day, when I'm in the Word, God's always showing, teaching, revealing something to me that I can learn from. And here's what I've learned. The more that I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. And if you will take a heart posture of coming to God's Word and being taught and to, be, and, and to learn, and if you don't feel like you need to sit under the biblical teaching of His Word, I'm just telling you, you're missing it. Because even when Jesus gave us the mission, remember what He says? And teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. So what did Jesus teach them? He taught them the gospel. He taught them how to love one another. He taught them how to forgive one another. He taught them how to love their enemies. He taught them how to serve. He taught them how to give generously. Like they, the apostles are teaching the new believers all these things that are absolutely critical to growing and walking out their faith as a disciple and as a disciple maker. That's why here at Salak, like God's word is the final authority in our lives and our decisions. It drives our values. It drives our priorities. It drives our decision-making. Not culture, but God's word. It's the curriculum that we use in our small groups. And here's why. For years, I grew frustrated because I felt like we spent so much time reading what other authors were saying about God's word that nobody was actually getting in God's word, and I saw a biblical illiteracy in the church. And it's like, yeah, they have value. Like, I love to read what other people, but I've got to spend time in God's word to know what God is saying to me. And you need to do the same. It's why I tell people, listen, you need to submit yourself and go to the body of believers, to go to the church and sit yourself under some biblical teaching where you're going to help you understand what God wants to do and allow the Holy Spirit to move and work and speak and convict so that you can grow and you can mature. So let me ask you, are you devoted to learning and applying God's work? Because it's absolutely critical as a follower of Jesus. The second thing you need to be devoted to is it says the fellowship. And the Greek word for fellowship there is koinonia, which literally means to share or to partner in something together. We call our membership class, we call it partnership. We want you to partner in membership. It's, it's coming together as a fellowship, as a, as a body. We want to share together. And it comes in, a, there's a high level of intimacy as it pertains to this word. Oftentimes, it can even be referred to in marriage. And so he's, he's given us this ability. So what's, what's so powerful is this word fellowship, this is interesting, it's nowhere mentioned in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
First time it's mentioned is here. And it comes with the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit gives us the opportunity to experience oneness and unity in the body, in the family of God. In the midst of all our diversity, we can have oneness. We can have unity. And in some churches, when you hear fellowship, like they're going to have a church fellowship, what does that mean? You're going to have food, right? That's automatically what most people think. Oh, yeah, there's a potluck at the church, right? And, uh, and so they'll come. But, but that was not the intention. They'll even have a fellowship hall. You'll see that in some older churches. Like that's, that, that's, a, that's a thing, right? And, and, again, it's not that it's wrong. It's just it's not what this word in this passage is really talking about. This is talking about an intimacy that I'm going to share with another or other believers. Like we're going to be a part of this fellowship to where I'm going to be transparent and I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to share my life with you. You're going to share it with me and we're going to grow together. See, that's what the new believers, that's what they were experiencing. That's what they were learning. And biblically, that's what this word means. And we've gotten away from it. We see the value of fellowship in the sense of intimacy within the marriage, but we often miss it in the context of church, which is a big part of the problem. See, that's why here we have such a high value for you to be honest and transparent. It's why we are going to model it from the stage. It's where I am going to model it for you when I teach or when I'm leading, that we're going to be honest with you. We're going to be transparent with you. We're not going to hide things. Why? Because we just feel like if we're going to be family, we're committed to going after the mission that God's given us, and we're honoring him, there's nothing to hide. Amen. And so as we walk this stuff out, this koinonia, if you will, it involves you being honest and transparent and vulnerable and not isolating, not, not pulling back, not putting up the facades that everything's okay when it really isn't. But the early church devoted themselves to this. And I'm going to tell you, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus and live in isolation. Amen. You just can't. Amen. You're called to be a part of the koinonia. You're called to be a part of the fellowship and in fellowship with one another. The third thing he says is that there's this breaking of bread. And again, a lot of people will assume he's talking about communion. That's not necessarily the case uh, but sometimes it is, and so there's a phrase that says the breaking of bread. It can refer to communion, and it could also refer to a meal. I want you to think of context, okay? So just so you know, when you study God's word, everything is context, 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 just like in real estate, location, location, location. In Bible study, it's context, context, context. So listen to this verse, Matthew 26. Now, as they were eating... Jesus took the bread, he's with his apostles, this is his disciples, and after breaking it, excuse me, after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and says, take, eat, this is my body. Is he talking about a meal or is he talking about communion? He's talking about communion. Now I want you to listen in Acts 27. And when he, talking about Paul, had said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and he began to eat. This is why context is so important. Same phrase, different meaning because of the context. Paul was on a ship that was going to go through a horrible storm, and he's surrounded by unbelievers, people that did not believe in Jesus. And he's breaking the bread, and he's, gonna, he's not having a communion service with people that aren't even followers of Jesus. He's breaking bread and having a meal before they go into this horrible storm. 
And there are other references, and I'm giving you this just so you have context. There's all kinds of other references throughout the New Testament for both, both having a meal as well as having communion because of verse 46, which we'll look at in a little bit. I think, I think you know, Luke's actually talking about, because Luke's the author, I think he's actually talking about both in the context here. And we should have meals with one another, and we should also break bread to have communion with one another, which we'll have at the end of the service today. But when you break bread with one another, it's not just to talk about the game. It's not just to talk about work and all the other stuff that's kind of, you know, out there. But, it, but what it does, when we do that, it just, it just keeps people far enough away from what's really going on that's somewhat safe for me. And what we're understanding from Scripture is that's not true fellowship. Like when you're going to break bread together, like let's talk about the real stuff. Like how are you and Jesus doing? How are you and your spouse doing? Like is there anything you're personally struggling with? And I'm going to share what's going on with me. And like we're going to walk this stuff out with one another, not put up the facades so that we can really experience true fellowship, koinonia, breaking of bread, the intention of it. And I'm just telling you, I've had some unbelievably intense and powerful conversations over meals with people. You just have to be intentional. The fourth thing here he gives us is, is prayers. Notice it's plural. And we'll, we'll see that next week in the chapter 3 when, when they're going to the temple and, and, and there's a, they have their time of prayer at the temple and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And what Luke is, Luke is, is really conveying, he's telling that the early days, these, these Jewish converts, they, they, were, you know, they still had a part of their system. They were diligent to observe these set aside, these stipulated times of prayer at the temple. And so these newly saved converts of, of Jesus are, are, haven't learned fully what Jesus taught them about prayer. And so they're growing in this. Like when Jesus gave the model, you know, the Lord's Prayer, it was just that, a model. It wasn't for you to recite the verse word by word. He's given us a model of understanding that when we pray, we're to come to him. Like, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be like, like what does it look like to adore him and worship him? Like you start there. Make him the object of our worship. It's about you. And we've kind of talked about the ACTS method, A-C-T-S. And, and again, the, the, the second part would be like, Lord, I confess. Like you adore God, you worship God. And then the second thing is you just confess. Pour your heart out to him. God, this is where I've blown it this week. Maybe I was harsh or rude or hurtful or unforgiving or I lusted after something that I, I shouldn't have been looking at or, or maybe I said some things or didn't do some things that were just sinful. Like, like whatever it is, like you would confess that. And then spend some time just thanking God. Like, God, thank you. Thank you so much just for all, not only for all that you've done, but for who you are. Like the song that we sang right before I got to come up here. Like just being able to proclaim all those characteristics about who God is. And just thanking him. Like, like when we're talking about Josh and Jenny wanting to adopt, like when we remember, like, God, you adopted me. You've been adopted by God into his family. Why wouldn't we want to help others do the same with kids here, right? Like when I'm reminded and thankful, it just leads to worship. And then, then 
The S is supplication. You get to ask. You get to request from the Lord. He's your good father. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to share what your needs are, what your hurts, what, your, what, what the desires of your heart. Like he wants you to share those. And there's all these characteristics that he says that we as the church should be devoted to. And then look what happens, verse 43. And he says, and awe or fear came upon every soul. Now remember, these new believers, they had publicly stood against their religion. I want, I want you to imagine you're standing in front of thousands and thousands of people, and all of a sudden, 3,000 of those people all of a sudden stood up against Judaism. And, and I say, how do you know that? Because they were publicly baptized. And so all of a sudden, you have all these people who have stood up against everything they've been taught their whole life, and now they've converted to following Jesus. So fear came upon every soul, and it says, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In other words, God was validating and authenticating his message. Now remember, they didn't have the word of God. They didn't have the Old and New Testament. They just had Old Testament. And listen to what the author of Hebrews says. So what makes us think that we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced to us by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those, who's those, talking about the apostles that we're talking about right now, to by those who heard him speak. And God confirmed the message, he validated it, by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. And here's the question I'll get asked. Why doesn't he do it now? Why don't we see all the signs and wonders now? And here's my response. He doesn't need to. I want you to think about it. You have history. You have the Old and the New Testament. You have been given so much evidence to validate that Jesus really is who he says he is. You've been given the Holy Spirit to do exactly everything that we really need. Now all you need to do, not look for more signs and wonders, just obey. Like that's got to be the heart posture of us now. Not looking, oh, you know, man, I wish you'd part the sea again as if you need more convincing that Jesus really is who he says he is. No, no, no. We just actually need to do it now. I mean, yeah, it would be cool. There's no doubt about it. Like, wow, that was awesome. It happened to the Israelites. They went through the Red Sea shortly after. They're questioning God, doing a, you know, building a nice little calf offer idol to God, you know, to whoever their God was going to be at that moment. Because why? Because things got hard. Did you not just remember that a cloud took you and, you know, gathered you through the sea and then the sea parted like you went? And that wasn't enough? Manna from heaven dropping, like that wasn't enough? Like we don't need more signs and wonders. We just need to obey. Hey, real quick, if anybody can, it's really hot in here. You guys hot? Maybe it's just me. This preaching stuff gets me warm. So come on. Come on. I'm fire. Yeah. It is warm, man. Uh, let's see, where in the world am I? Oh, yeah, verse 44. Sorry. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So again, the unity of the church is what characterized the believers. Notice it didn't say, and all who believed eventually led to a church split. 
There's not divisiveness. 